Hi guys, Lonre and Lisa here. We just wanted to hop in before the show to tell you how much we appreciate your support. It means so much to us, and we'd love to ask you for a small favor. If you could subscribe to our show, rate us, and write a written review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods, we would be forever grateful. And if you know someone who'd enjoy listening, please tell them about it. And of course, follow the Hippocratic hosts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to keep up with all the latest news. Thanks, everyone. You're the best. Now on with the show. Modern life. Between careers, kids, and health, it can be mayhem. That's why we're here. I'm Dr. Lisa Varghese-Kroll. And I'm Dr. Lonre Falusi. We're physicians, moms, and longtime friends who break it all down for you. Wondering how to juggle all the balls and still stay sane? Looking for advice but don't want to be overwhelmed? Curious about how to make the most out of life for your family but enjoy it at the same time? You're in the right place. Welcome to Health and Home with the Hippocratic Hosts. On this episode, ouch, we're talking about pain. Nobody likes to hurt. So what are the options for treating pain when we have it? And what is the opioid crisis and how does it affect us? And when is it time to call in a specialist? Hey, Lisa. Hey, Lon. Hey, so we're talking about a big one today. I know. And this may be the first time anyone has ever been excited about pain. (laughs) But seriously, listen, pain is something that every person on the planet has experience with in some way or another. So the reason I'm excited is because this is an episode for all of us. So because of that, we want to give a brief but thorough overview that will hopefully help break down the options available to deal with pain and help everyone understand the risks that are present in order to help keep you and your family safe. So, you know, pain is a part of life and it actually serves a valuable purpose to protect us. Like if we stick our hand into a raging fire, it hurts and it makes us pull our hand out. Without pain, we'd keep hanging around with our hand in the fire and we'd end up losing our hand and possibly our life. So pain in and of itself is not always bad. But of course, pain shouldn't last forever. When pain becomes chronic and starts interfering with our ability to work or sleep or exercise, then it's a problem and pain management of some sort is necessary. And, you know, chronic pain has been estimated to cost the U.S. economy between $500 and $635 billion per year in lost days of work, lower wages, and healthcare costs. So this is a really huge problem that even people who are lucky enough not to have pain end up sharing. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of reasons why people might develop that debilitating, long-standing pain. You know, it could be from old sports injuries or autoimmune diseases, obesity, cancer, sickle cell disease, you know, so many potential reasons. Sure. And for that reason, it's important to tailor the treatment to the cause of the ongoing pain. It's also important to remember that there are different types of pain. So some of the most common are musculoskeletal pain. So that's you know pain originating from muscles or tendons or ligaments. Or you can have neuropathic pain, which is pain that originates from your nerves. Or psychogenic pain, which is emotional pain that really can worsen physical pain. That's right. And so because there are so many complexities, it's important to always discuss any pain regimen with your doctor. 
Um, pain management is a medical subspecialty of its own that physicians train for years in order to practice. And if your pain is severe, your primary care provider may ultimately refer you to a pain management specialist. So what are the different types of pain management? Um, so historically, the World Health Organization's analgesic ladder for cancer pain was used as a guideline to determine how to prescribe pain treatments. So, But now there is some debate these days about how to use this or how the steps should be modified, but it's still valuable for giving an overall idea. So we'll link to it in our show notes. And in terms of options for pain management, so we'll start from the least invasive and go up from there. So take it away, Lisa. <laughs> so that means we'll start with non-pharmacologic options. So as you know, as human beings, we have a tendency to want a quick fix in the form of a pill, right? Like, imagine if I could eat chocolate cake all day and then pop a pill so it would have zero effect on my cardiovascular health. Sign me up. <laughs> oh, don't tease me. <laughs> but, you know, research shows that pills often don't provide long-term relief, and they also have side effects of their own. So for really long-term, more permanent relief of pain, Non-pharmacologic interventions are often more effective than medications. Uh, maintaining a healthy weight through diet and exercise may actually be one of the most effective ways to prevent or treat pain. One of the reasons for that is that when our joints have less weight to carry, knee and back pain tends to resolve or at least improve. Um, things like yoga and massage help keep joints and muscles limber. And there's some evidence that spinal health is better in the elderly who live in cultures where daily yoga is common. Isn't that unbelievable? <laughs> That's just amazing. Yeah. Uh, splints and braces can often provide support and relief while an acute injury is healing. Physical therapy or PT is an extremely important tool because these therapists are highly skilled professionals who can not only help treat the source of pain, but also give patients the tools to keep pain at bay by customizing exercise programs for them to continue on their own at home. And we also know that emotional pain absolutely exacerbates physical pain, particularly when that emotional pain is severe or longstanding, such as when it's due to past trauma or abuse or depression. Physical pain actually cannot be cured until the emotional aspect is addressed. And in those cases, counseling and psychiatric treatment are crucial. Such a good point. Right? I think it's something that's very easy to overlook, but something that we really need to acknowledge. Um, and stress management is another component of that. Many types of physical pain are directly related to life stress and can't be resolved until the stress itself is modified in some way. So another option is cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, which is a form of talk therapy that can be effective in pain management. And, you know, when you talk about kids in pain, you know, most of this episode is going to be geared towards adults. But kids, we have to remember that they may not even understand why they're in pain or they they may think that they've done something wrong to deserve the pain. So a major part of pain management in children is that emotional piece, encouraging them to talk about what they're feeling, answering their questions honestly at a developmentally appropriate level, of course, and using art and toys to help them with coping. And now sort of shifting from the non-pharmacologic treatments to now some medications, um, we'll talk first about some, you know, oral medications. And this is, you know, disclaimer here, this is not an exhaustive list by any, by any means. Um, so it's important to remember that just because a medication is over the counter 
doesn't mean that it's benign. Every medication has side effects and potential interactions with other medications, which is why it's really important to tell your physician about everything you take, including vitamins and herbal supplements. So first, let's talk about non-opioid medications. So these are used for mild to moderate pain. Acetaminophen or Tylenol is in this category. A few things to remember, Tylenol is metabolized in the liver and it's actually present in multiple over-the-counter medications. So it's really important to keep track of the combined doses you're taking and make sure you don't exceed that upper limit of Tylenol in the day. If you do, that could put you at risk of liver failure. And that upper limit actually varies by person. It's generally 3,000 milligrams a day for an adult, um, but talk to your doctor to find out if you belong to a category with an even lower limit. And because alcohol is also metabolized in the liver, Tylenol should not be taken if you have a history of alcohol abuse or while you're consuming alcohol. So a few other drugs, aspirin, ibuprofen, and other NSAIDs or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, that's what NSAID stands for, are also in this category of non-opioid medications. Because these have anti-inflammatory properties, they're often used for pain related to diseases such as arthritis. But you have to be careful because these can increase your risk of gastric ulcers and bleeding. And these medications have significant interactions with other medications, especially cardiac medications. So the take home is that although these medications are all over the counter and are often very effective, you can't pop them like candy. You know, you need to have your doctor's guidance. Um, and this is certainly true for kids since aspirin specifically tends to be discouraged, except in certain circumstances for kids. And ibuprofen is not recommended for younger infants. So always good to, again, no matter what the age, check in with your doctor about guidance around even these over-the-counter medications. That's right. And another category of uh, non-opioid medication is muscle relaxants. We don't have a lot of great data on these, but physicians sometimes recommend these, uh, particularly when muscle spasms are present. And some examples are Xanaflex or Robaxin. And we should also talk about antidepressants even when you talk about pain management. So these tend to be prescribed for neuropathic and psychogenic pain. And some of them do have multiple side effects, so they need to be titrated pretty carefully. They often work well in conjunction with other modalities or other medications as opposed to just on their own. Um, and some examples of these are Cymbalta, Effexor, and Elevil. And there are also topical medications, and these can be patches, such as lidoderm patches is one example, uh, in which the medication is slowly absorbed through the skin, or they can be creams, such as capsaicin cream. Capsaicin is an interesting one because it's actually derived from hot peppers, and the heat is part of its pain-fighting mechanism, which can be effective, but it does have to be applied carefully because it can actually cause burns. And let's talk about opioids. So you've probably heard lots about this in the news in recent years. Uh, opioid medications are used for moderate to severe pain, and usually after all the other medication options have been exhausted. So these act on the same receptors as opium and block the transmission of pain signals from the body to the brain. Some examples are morphine, fentanyl, Dilaudid, or Percocet. They do have lots of side effects, including constipation, depression, cognitive impairment even. 
And then the long-term side effects are, include paradoxical hyperalgesia. So, and that is that happens when the pain receptors are actually primed to feel more pain. You can also have respiratory depression, so your breathing slows down, um, sexual dysfunction, immunosuppression, which is really particularly concerning during COVID, um, and addiction, as we're familiar with, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a bit. And, you know, by this point, if none of these uh, non-pharmacologic or oral medications have been effective, you may be referred to an interventional pain physician if that hasn't happened already. And uh, these are physicians that perform procedures to help with pain. And shout out, this is my husband's field, so this is his shop talk. (laughs) But the procedures that he and his colleagues do can range from simple ones like trigger point injections, which is where a small needle is used to inject affected muscles, Uh, and joint injections, which is where a needle is used to inject steroids and or pain medications into a painful joint, uh, to more advanced procedures, such as x-ray-guided epidural injections or nerve blocks. And if those don't work, they may move to more invasive procedures, such as the implantation of spinal stimulator devices or pain medication pumps. And if none of these work, and if there's a physical issue that surgery will fix, that may be an option. Um, This might be an option for things like a severe disc herniation or severely arthritic joint. With those cases, surgery may be the best option, in fact. And surgery, of course, has its own risks, such as bleeding or infection. Anesthesia is very safe, but does have its own risks of things like pneumonia or stroke. And sometimes surgery is not effective and the pain is unchanged or even potentially worse. However, in the right circumstances, surgery really can make a huge difference in pain. That's right. And so, you know, there are all these options that we're lucky enough in, in, in modern society uh, to have when we're talking about how to handle pain. But as with everything, there is always a downside. And when we talk about pain management, one of the major downsides that we've all heard a lot about recently is the opioid crisis. And the opioid crisis stems from addiction. As, as many of you know, the definition of addiction is compulsive behavior that continues despite consequences. So that compulsion could be an action like gambling or shopping, or it could be the ingestion of a substance such as alcohol or pain medications. And opioid addiction over the past 25 years has led to what's known as the opioid crisis in the United States. And, you know, the opioid crisis is an extremely complex concept whose historical origins and effects are really beyond the scope of this podcast episode. But to give a very brief synopsis, when extended release opioid medications such as OxyContin, uh, and extended release means opioids that are released gradually into the bloodstream over several hours instead of all at once. So you typically only need to take one or two doses per day. When these extended release formulations were first introduced in the 1990s, they were marketed as being non-addictive. However, that ultimately turned out to not be the case. According to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, over 47,000 people die each year in the United States due solely to opioid overdoses, and this number has been increasing. And there are some scary statistics here. Uh, 21 to 29% of people prescribed opioids end up misusing them. 80% of people using heroin actually started out by taking prescription opioids. And the total cost to the country in healthcare, addiction treatment, and legal costs is $78.5 billion per year. 
Uh, so for all these reasons, the Department of Health and Human Services declared the opioid crisis a public health emergency in 2017. So with all that said, you know, there is increasing evidence that we shouldn't be carefree about, you know, taking a few weeks of Percocet for wisdom tooth surgery or for a broken leg. The opioids are powerful medications that, as many families will attest, have destroyed lives. That doesn't mean that there's no place for opioid therapy. You know, under the close supervision of a specialized physician, they can be safe and they can be effective in managing pain. But it does mean that we need to be very vigilant and opioids really cannot be a first line option. Because of these serious issues, even within the field of pain management, the general movement has been to move away from opioids, except for a few circumstances like cancer-related pain. And, you know, we can't talk about pain medication or the opioid crisis without discussing the racial and ethnic inequities in our own healthcare system. You know, many studies have shown that physicians tend to have implicit biases that tend to assume that a Black patient in pain is exaggerating that pain just to get pain medications compared to a white patient with the exact same story and symptoms. So tragically, what happens is that pain tends to be undertreated in Black patients compared to other races, even in significantly painful events like a sickle cell pain crisis. And while we appreciate the research that now points to addiction as a medical condition to be treated rather than immediately criminalized, it's important to remember that people in Black and Brown, largely urban communities who were devastated by the American crack cocaine epidemic in the 1980s and 90s could have and should have benefited from the knowledge that we have that indicates that you know, the most appropriate response to addiction is treatment, not permanent resident in the legal system. That's right. That's exactly right. So knowing all of that, how how should we approach pain? What's the step-by-step guide? So, you know, we would always say to start, whether your pain is acute or chronic, you should always start by discussing with your doctor. And they'll often start by having you rate your pain on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being the worst pain of your life. And patients often ask about this, and it's important to know that this is a subjective scale. We all know that one person's 10 may be another person's two. So don't worry about that. The scale is used to compare you to you. So if you're usually at a five and then one day you're a nine, your doctor then knows that this is different from your baseline. They may start by recommending the acronym RICE. RICE stands for rest, ice, compression, and elevation. Uh, Lifestyle modifications may be another thing that they recommend. Things like using specialized tools such as reaching aids or jar grips. And, you know, we've mentioned OXO before on this podcast, but we love that brand because they design kitchen tools that are easy on the joints, and uh, their brand was originally aimed at arthritis patients. So we'll link to them in the show notes. And the next step is typically non-pharmacologic interventions, things that we discussed before, such as weight loss, yoga, and PT. And your doctor may also recommend a TENS unit, that's T-E-N-S stands for transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. It's a small battery-powered device that's worn on the body and uses electrical impulses to create a tingling sensation, which for some people decreases the sensation of pain using what's called the gate theory, which is that non-painful stimuli can close the gate to painful sensation. 
such as using a TENS unit or rubbing the affected area or using positive thinking. And I'll say that I had knee surgery a couple of years ago and part of the recovery with um, the physical therapist included using a TENS unit. And I found that to be so helpful. And and it's such an interesting theory. And it makes sense, right? If you bump your arm, what do you do? Oh, you grab it and like you rub it, try to make it feel, you know, feel better. So kind of the same concept, but just a little more technology when it comes to the TENS unit. See, we all innately understood the gate theory. Right, exactly. We're we're researchers. Exactly. (laughs) Every one of us. (laughs) So if that doesn't provide adequate relief, they may recommend over-the-counter medications like the ones we've discussed. And if pain persists, they may then refer you to a pain specialist who will likely recommend a multimodal approach using maybe physical therapy and oral medications and interventional procedures if indicated. It's really important to remember that there are some red flags specifically for back pain. So if you notice any of these and definitely seek medical attention immediately. So things like back pain that starts after a recent fall or an accident, if you have fever or chills, rapid weight loss, if you lose your bowel or bladder function, if you develop numbness or weakness or shooting pain, especially like down your legs, any signs of infection, or if you've had cancer in the past. If you have any of those um, with back pain specifically, definitely call your doctor right away. Absolutely. And that brings us to the Physician Mom Hack of the Week. So we have two this week because we think that both of them can be really helpful for people that are struggling with pain. And they're both fairly easy to implement. So the first is the use of a standing desk. So it's been repeatedly shown that sitting changes the distribution of pressure in your spine, which can exacerbate back pain. You may have heard the saying that sitting is the new smoking. Mm -hmm. And while we might not go that far, there is something to be said for the fact that uh, in modern society, we tend to be a lot more sedentary and that does tend to translate into more pain. So if you, have, if you suffer from back pain and you have a sedentary job that requires you to be at a desk for hours on end, a standing desk can be a lifesaver. There are lots of different types from fully motorized ones to folding ones that you set on top of an existing desk. And we recommended one back in episode 16. But whatever type you get, going from zero to 60, meaning going from sitting all day to standing all day, can actually make back pain worse. So if you invest in one, use it in conjunction with a timer. Start by standing for just 30 minutes a day. Once that timer goes off, you can sit again for the rest of the day. Every couple of days, increase the interval by 30 minutes. If you need to, use even shorter 10 or 15 minute intervals. It may take weeks until you're spending the whole day standing, but by building your endurance gradually, you'll have a much better chance of making it a permanent lifestyle. And our second tip is using a mindfulness app. So this is where we can take advantage of technology. There are tons of apps out there that use meditation, pain psychology, and tools such as pain diaries to help people manage their pain. And some well-known ones are Curable, Headspace, the WebMD Mobile Pain Coach. We're not endorsing any of these specifically, and you might find one that you like better, but if you find that pain is interfering with your life, give a mindfulness app a try for two weeks. Ask your doctor if they have ones that they recommend, and you might be surprised at the difference that it makes. So that's our show. Hopefully 
we can relieve some of your pain with some of these tips. Thanks so much for listening. We appreciate it every time. Um, And of course, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We would love if you could subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, if you like what you hear, share it with a friend. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Health at Home with the Hippocratic Hosts. Remember that all views expressed here are our own, not our employers. And all content is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as medical advice nor the establishment of a doctor-patient relationship. Always consult your own physician or healthcare team for any medical issues. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us, subscribe, and tell a friend. And check out our website at www.hippocratichosts.com for show notes on this and all our episodes. Can't wait to chat with you next time.